0: Okay, it's good to see everybody. I want to start though by um, putting this overhead up. There you go. Pretty, pretty macabre kind of start. Um, if I told you that they were from a fashion catalog, you'd probably be surprised. <laughs> um, if I told you that this was in fact the latest design in jewelry, designer jewelry, you might think it a bit odd. But electric plated, i um, sorry, gold plated electric chairs, um, guillotine man and uh, the noose there, and uh, we. Th- we we think it's a bit unusual because, well, why? Why do we think it's unusual? Because they're all forms of death penalty, and we, you know, that is pretty unusual. But interestingly, when uh, when you see jewellery that's um, the shape of a cross, we don't pay the blindest bit of notice. We don't think of that in the same category. You get earrings, you get big crosses, little crosses, whatever, and uh, nothing against them. But in fact, the cross or crucifixion is a far crueler form of the death penalty than actually any of those three things up there. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Why did Jesus die? Why is the cross so central to the Christian faith? As you read through the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, they're really biographies about the life of Jesus. And if you read any normal biography, it generally is about the life of a person. And you may, at the very end... Get something about their death, about how they died, or whatever, kind of last page type of thing. But when you read through the Gospels, which are the biographies of Jesus, you actually find whole chapters um, given over to the death and after that of Jesus. Kind of weighted much more towards um, a lot of of how he dies, um, which normally you wouldn't think of as being that important. The last few days of his life, as you dig around and look at the archaeology of the early church, you find that the early church even celebrated um, the the death, if you like, of Jesus. The communion service, which you you may know about, is about wine and bread. And the wine represents the blood of Jesus. And that's what they celebrated. That's what they remembered, um, even in the earliest services. As you read through the New Testament, um, Paul, the great apostle Paul, said this. He said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And last week we looked at who Jesus was. And so this week we want to look at the crucifixion and what what that's got to do, why it's so important to the Christian faith. Why is Jesus' death any more important than anyone else's? Because many people in this world have died as martyrs for great causes. But what makes Jesus' death so special? First of all, I believe that we need to understand what our greatest need is mankind the greatest need that mankind has M- most of us many people certainly in this country don't think of themselves as particularly bad people they they're they're good you know they've they've not killed anybody they've not um, done an armed robbery anything like that so they're basically okay so I don't need I don't need god but if we're honest with ourselves and you start to just be aware of your conscience even, what you have, what you're aware of morally in your own life, you actually begin to realise that, that well, we're not perfect. We fall short of of God's perfect standard, if you like. And the honesty is we don't even make our own standards. How we want to be as a parent, how we want to be as a friend, how we want to be as a dad, how we want to be in society. We, We never quite live up to even our own standards. But just in case we're we're blind to the fact. The Bible tells us that if, you, if, you, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to it. It's on page 1131. And we'll be in this passage a few times tonight, so we'll look at it. It's Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Page 1131, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And Paul describes here the need that is common to all of us. He says this He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, everybody has done things that we know are wrong, and so we're not perfect. And very often, we find it easier to see in other people than we do in ourselves. It's, we often try and justify ourselves when we're caught out. Uh, we like to shift the blame to other people. Uh, I think the classic example is when you see two cars that crash. You know, and it's, it's always the other person's fault. And uh, I've got a few things here which are taken from insurance claims. And these are where people are trying to kind of get, shift the blame, if you like, or even make an insurance claim for something that where they were clearly in the wrong. Here's one or two of them. My car collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. In an attempt to kill a fly... I drove into a telephone pole. I'd been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. The pedestrian had no idea which way to go, so I ran him over, (laughs) and uh, my favourite, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. But we know how easy it is to make excuses. We know how easy it is to shift the blame, um, but we find it very, very difficult to admit mistakes in our own lives. But Paul says here, the Bible says here that, that every one of us has, has sinned. every one of us has fallen short. And the word "sin," we tend to the media tends to twist it to only mean only have kind of sexual morality kind of connotations. But actually, he defines, Paul actually defines sin here, and he just says it's simply this. It's simply falling short of God's perfect standard. So it's a bit like a dart player trying to hit the bullseye, and his dart keeps falling short of the target. That's, that's really what it means. And if you imagine this wall here, and when you had to write, every human being got, got to write a name on this wall. Okay. And you're on a scale of good at the top to bad at the bottom. Okay, so you've got your people like you, um, your Hitlers, possibly, pretty low down there, near the skirting board. And maybe people like Mother Teresa, kind of getting, getting close up to the ceiling there. And you have to put yourself on, okay, on the scale of human beings and how good or bad you are. So you just think where you would put yourself. We probably think we're somewhere in the middle. We don't think we're bad. But the question is, what is the pass mark, you see? Do you fall below the pass mark or above the pass mark? What is the pass mark? Is it fifty percent? Is it seventy percent? What is it? What's the pass mark? Well the Bible tells us that the pass mark isn't the ceiling, the pass mark is the sky. So every one of us falls short of God's standard because the pass mark is is the life that Jesus lived. Perfect, godly life. And every human being falls short of that, well short of it. Now some of you say, well well, that's too hard, I can never live like that, so why bother trying? Or some of you say, well we all fall into the same boat, every human being, you know, if we've got Hitler, we've got um, Mother Teresa, myself, all the people here, we're all in the same boat, so what is the point of even trying to be better? And the reason that it, that it matters, because that's a, that's a misunderstanding, is because of the consequences or the results of sin in our lives, So that's what I want to look at. And the Bible points out various consequences, if you like, to the things that, that are wrong in our lives. Um, the first of those is uh, the pollution of sin. If you turn in your Bibles to page 1010, Mark chapter 7 and verse 21 to 23. And Jesus says here, he says, What comes out of a man or a woman? is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness or lustfulness, envy, slander, which is false or malicious talk, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that if, even if only one of these applies, then we're guilty of breaking the whole law, um, because sin pollutes us. It's a bit like, have I got a hanky on me? I don't have a hanky on me. But if I had a, clean, I had a, a handkerchief, and you said to me, and Andy, can I, can I borrow your handkerchief? Um, is it clean? And I said, well, it, well it is. And I, and I just blew my nose on it once, okay, a little bit, and gave it to you. You say, that's not clean, Andy. I said, Well it's reasonably clean. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, Well, I'm not too sure I want it now. <laughs> it's one spot on it, if you like, blemishes it and makes the whole thing polluted in that sort of way. You know, how much sewage do you need to put into a river before you don't want to drink it? Okay. <laughs> very, very little is the answer. Um, and sin is the same way. It pollutes us. It works in our lives to do that. And then it pollutes our relationships and it pollutes our world. And I don't think it's very hard when you look at the world around us to basically see that the world around us is a mess. So much of society, there is corruption, there's hatred, there's family breakup, there's people's lives that are hurting as a result of selfishness and sinfulness in society. But what we've got to recognise is it's not just out there, but actually it comes down and is present in every single one of us. Every human being um, is basically like that. It's in you, it's in me. If I was to get a special video camera okay, that could video your life, right, and we're going to video all the things you've ever done, particularly the, the, the bad things. Okay. And we're going to video not only that, but all the things you've ever said about people, all the thoughts you've ever had about people, and we're going to edit this video together of your life and make it really juicy, get all the juicy bits together, and we're going to show it next week. Okay, we're going to get the video projector, I'm going to show your video. Okay, and we're going to invite everybody here, and everybody that appears in the video, to come and watch. Okay. Chances are you won't turn up. <laughs> okay. I know I wouldn't turn up if it was my video, because I know what I'm like inside. Because that's the way sin affects our lives. It pollutes us, it makes us say, do, think things that are unclean or polluted in that kind of way, that we're ashamed of. Um, okay, so that's the first thing. And that is one of the things, that it aff- how it affects us. The second thing is that it has power over us. If you turn to page 1074, page 1074, <coughs> which is John chapter 8, and verse 34. Page 1074, John chapter 8, and verse 34. And Jesus replies to a question he's been asked, and he says this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now that is probably most obvious or most apparent when you look at somebody who's um, addicted to something like drugs or alcohol um, or gambling or violence. They're particularly strong things that people get addicted to. And you can see that it has a power over them. They're unable to break out of it. They're unable to break free from it in their own strength. But it also applies to everything else in life that is sinful. Things like twisting the truth to suit ourselves, telling lies, selfishness is addictive, arrogance, pride, backbiting, doing what others expect of you, even if it's wrong, simply to stay in the crowd. We find ourselves unable to break free from, from these patterns of behaviour because sin has a power to enslave us and to trap us into it. Um, there's a story of... Uh, uh, it's a sort of fable, really, of um, the eagle. And the eagle lives in this this jungle beside a river. And at the end of the river, there's a uh, there's great waterfall. And the eagle thinks it's the strongest animal around, the cleverest, wisest animal. And uh, one day, from the top of the mountain, a kind of block of ice has broken off in the snow melt, and he's floating down the river. And all the animals watch as the eagle glides down and lands on the ice, and it just sits there, stands there, slowly getting closer and closer to the edge of the waterfall, and all the animals are sitting there gasping, What's he going to do? And the eagle just stays there, and in his mind, the eagle is going to wait to the very last minute and then fly away. Okay, and it's everybody's going to be so amazed. But he gets to the end of the, the waterfall, just to the edge of it, tries to fly, and finds that his feet have frozen. To the ice, whew, and plummets to his death. And that's a, a picture, if you like, of the way sin entraps us. And we think that we can be free of it. We think we are in control of it. But when we try and break free, we find that it, it has got a grip on us in a way that we never really realised. So that's the second consequence, if you like, or result of sin: is it it entraps us, it enslaves us. And the third one is the penalty of sin. If you turn back to page 1133, 1133, um, sorry, forwards, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Page 1133, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And God tells us here, through his word, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That is the what you get at the end of the week, if you like. What you get at the <coughs> end of your life is death. The penalty for falling short of God's perfect standard, which we all do, is death. And uh, elsewhere in the Bible, that's defined as being separated from God. So... The offer is of eternal life, where we come into relationship with God, but the the consequence of sin on our own is separation from God. (coughs) Spiritual death, if you like, eternal death, life forever without God. And that really is what the definition of hell is. Hell is a place where we're cut off from God for eternity. And heaven is a place where we're in relationship with God for eternity. And so that's the ultimate penalty, if you like, separation from God, not only in this life, but forevermore. And I believe these are results, or these are consequences of sin, that actually shout out to us that it does matter. That in some way, we need to find a way to deal with this, because the consequences, we're told in this book, are very real consequences, and frightening consequences. But the world tells us that your greatest need is happiness. All you need is happiness find it in all sorts of ways but surely our greatest need as human beings is in some way to find a way to deal with sin so that we can be free of these consequences and that is why jesus came an anonymous poet has written this he said this if our greatest need had been information god would have sent us an educator and if our greatest need had been money then god would have sent us an economist if our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour, one who saves us, one who rescues us. And that's actually what the name Jesus means. His it's literal meaning is he saves, because that is what he came to do. Now, what has God done? Has he said, well, you guys have got yourself into the mess. You've all fallen well short of the standard and you're all out of the darts team because you've missed the mark. Um, Get yourself out of this mess. Or has he done something? Well, he's actually, we find, that he's done something because he loves us. Although he's a holy God who looks on sin in real terms, and although he's a just God who has to deal with sin because we've wronged God, if you like, he's also an incredible God of love. A love a God of incredible love. And so he's done something himself to do it and deal with this situation for us. Somebody's described it as the self substitution of God and that he's come to take our place. If you want to turn back in your Bible to page one thousand two hundred and nineteen, one thousand two hundred and nineteen <coughs> Peter describes this substitution. Page 1219, one two one nine, first Peter chapter two and verse twenty four. Okay, page 1219, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And this is talking about Jesus Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now I'm going to read that again. And I want you to just to notice the, what he has done for us. Okay? And for you. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree or on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's a book called Miracle on the River Kwai, which is from the Second World War. And uh, Ernest Gordon tells the true story there of uh, the prisoners of war who were working on the Burma Railway. And what they would do is they went out in teams every day to dig and to lay the rails. And they were each given a spade and they were in units of ten. And at the end of each day they would count up the spades and and then take them back to the camp. And one day, apparently there's a spade missing. There's a spade missing and this unit of ten are standing there and the guard He's pointing his rifle at them, he's cocked the the trigger, and uh, he's shouting, All die! All die! Where's the spade? And at this point, one of the guys, one of the soldiers, steps forward. And the guard beats him and clubs him to death with the butt of his rifle. They then march them straight back to the barracks, (coughs) to the camp. They recount the spades, and they find that there are ten spades. And everybody realizes that what the guy that stepped forward has done it to save the lives of the others, even though he hadn't done it. And in a similar way, that is what Jesus has done. He's come to die so that we need not. He's come to take our place and take the punishment that he didn't deserve (coughs) instead of us. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. At the beginning, I th- mentioned the fact that crucifixion was one of the cruelest forms of death, and uh, I just want to go through it because most of us don 't really know what it involved. The historian Cicero described it as the most cruel and hideous of tortures. It began with a flogging. Jesus was tied to a whipping post, and then with a, with a, a whip made of four or five thongs of lead with bits of metal, um, lead, sharp dagged bone woven into it, he was then whipped with that. Um, Eusebius, the third century historian, wrote this about crucifixion. The sufferer's veins were laid bare. The very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were left open to exposure. We're then told that Jesus had a crown of thorns thrust into his head, and then he was mocked by a battalion of men in a confined space. He was hit about the head with a wooden implement, wooden weapon, and then forced to carry the crossbar, on his shoulders, over a hundred pounds in weight. He walks for f- six or seven hundred yards until he collapses, the account tells us. And then Simon of Cyrene, he takes the, takes the crossbar on to the place of crucifixion, where Jesus was then stripped naked, six-inch nails driven into his forearms, sort of through here, above his wrists, into a bar lying on the ground. His knees are twisted sideways so that his ankles could be nailed, between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. And then on this piece of wood, he's then lifted up and dropped into the into the hole in the ground, by which in the socket that's um, to hold the thing that he died on. And there he would have hung in intense heat for six hours, he hung, in the middle of uh, midday, from nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. Unbearable thirst, mocked by the crowd, and Slowly and painfully, died. And it was described crucifixion as the height of pain, and as the depth of shame, because you were there for everyone to see. So why did he do it? He hadn't done anything wrong. In fact, when you read the physical, when you read the, the New Testament, you actually find that the physical parts of what he suffered is not the main thing. It's not even the. Uh, Emotional suffering, the fact that he was abandoned by those that followed him and uh, denied by Peter, etc. But actually, the spiritual suffering that he took. When he's hanging on the cross, we find that he's cut off from God. He's cut off from the Father. He's hanging on the cross and he shouts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And suddenly, you realise and see that he's been separated from the Father. Because he's taken in his body the sin of the world. And the Father can't look on it. Because that is the punishment we deserve, to be separated from God. So then, wh- why did he do it? What has it achieved? What purpose did it have? Well, I want to look at four images that come in the Bible. I'll just put up the, the verses. You can you can, you don't, you can turn to this. Well, it's, it's on here. It's the bit we looked at at the very beginning. Romans chapter three, and the first of those is in the yellow. Now these are funny words, so I'm going to explain them. And it's this word justified. It's a second one in the, the bottom one, and it comes from the law court. It's a term which basically means to be acquitted, if you like. And uh, there's a picture here of two friends, and they both grow up at school together, get on very well, but they go into different professions. One goes into the legal profession and becomes a solicitor. And the other one goes into a life of crime. One day, the criminal is up in front of his mate as a judge, you see. And he thinks, oh, he'll let me off the hook. We were <coughs> good mates at school. He'll let me off the hook. And he stands there and the, the court hears everything. And the judge says, well, you need to get, he says, you're going to get the maximum fine for your crime. Because I stand for justice. And the guy's gutted. He thinks, man, who's my mate? But then the judge comes round, takes off his wig, comes round the front, and he writes out a cheque for the amount of his fine. Because he's got to stand for justice, but because of his love, he then comes and pays the price. And that's similar with God. But with God, it's not a fine that he pays for us. It's that spiritual death. It's that God-forsakenness that he took on the cross. And God's love is even greater because the cost is even greater. But he comes to us and he says, here's a cheque. We're guilty, and here's a check for life. Do you want to take it? Because I've paid for it. Or do you want to take it yourself? The second picture of what it is... So if you like to be justified, it's like the penalty has been paid for. Kay? The penalty has been paid for on the cross. The second picture comes from the marketplace, and it's this red word, redemption. And uh, basically, in the ancient world... If you owed a lot of money and you couldn't pay it, what you could do is you could kind of sell yourself as a slave to someone. okay, And you basically worked for them for the rest of your life unless some very uh, generous person came along and paid the, r- the ransom price or the redemption price for you. And then if they paid the money, then you could be set free. Again, it's like Jesus has paid the ransom price for you and I. Because we not only we, we're not slave to somebody, if you like, but we're enslaved to sin, and when Jesus died on the cross, he's paid the ransom price to break the power that sin has over us, just like you're set free from whoever you were working for. You're set free from the power of sin. There are many people who have become Christians who have been set free from various addictions that are very noticeable, like drug addictions, etc., because God has done something that they've been unable to do in their lives. The third picture is this orange, sacrifice of atonement. Okay, Another funny word. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, once a year, how they used to try and deal with their sin was they would, the priests would come with an animal, usually a, a bull or a lamb. And Then what you would do is you'd place your hand on the lamb. And that was a picture of you transferring your sin and all the wrongdoing in your life onto the animal. And then they would um, sacrifice the animal. And that never achieved anything, but it was a picture in the Old Testament of what was going to come in the New Testament, and that was Jesus. And John, when he first sees Jesus, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he was saying was, Jesus is the Lamb. Okay? We can transfer our sin onto him, and he will die, okay, the perfect sacrifice on the cross to take away the sin of the world. So it was, it was a picture, if you like, of what Jesus was going to do. And John writes that the blood of Jesus, okay, when he died, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. I.e. it washes us clean of the pollution of sin. It cleans us from the inside. So we find that Jesus dying on the cross cleans us from the pollution of sin. It breaks this, the hold or the power that sin has over our lives so we can be free of it. And it also pays for the penalty that, that is due us, which is separation from God, for sin in our lives. And uh, I suppose lastly, it brings us back to God. It restores the relationship. Because of our sin, we're cut off from God. And by being forgiven of our sin, because of what Jesus has done on the cross... It restores us into relationship with God as our Father, who cares for us, who provides for us, who wants the best for our lives. And ultimately, the presence of sin will be wiped out forever, which is what heaven is all about. A place where there is no sin, where there is no sickness, where there is no disease, where there is no pain, where there is none of the consequences that we see in this world around us because of selfishness and greed and sinful people like you and I. So to sum up then, it's a bit like... This is, this is me, okay, if you like. I'm separated from God by this, this wedge of sin and things that are wrong in my life. Say, things, think, do, all the rest of it. And so I can't get through to God because I'm separated by that. Jesus comes, having lived a perfect, sinless life, in perfect relationship with his Father. And he comes and he dies on the cross. And when he was on the cross, he takes the punishment for my sin. He's now separated from his father. Why have you forsaken me? Because of the sin of the world upon him. And as I put my trust in him, I can be free from that sin so that I can come into relationship with God. And that's what it means to be forgiven, and that's what it means to be a Christian. But not only that, because I could just build up another batch of sin, if you like, but it says that that God gives us a free gift of righteousness, it's like he clothes us in, in the life of Jesus. So that when he looks at me, he no longer <laughs> looks at me with all my faults, but he looks at me as he looked at Jesus. And it's a free gift. It's not something you try and do. It's not something you try and earn. But it's a free gift that comes by simply believing in what Jesus has done on the cross. And by confessing the things that are wrong in our lives and giving them, if you like, putting them on that cross with Jesus and saying, I want to leave them there. And saying I want to now follow God now that I'm free from those things. But it's, uh, it's important that we discover that for ourselves. That it's not just something Jesus died for every sin in the world. But that he died for my sin. He died for your sin. When he was on the cross, what was he thinking about? He was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. He was the son of God. Somebody said why don't you get yourself down off the cross? He could have done that. There was only nails holding him up there. But it wasn't the nails that kept him up there. It was his love for you that kept him on there. Because he saw the consequences more vividly than we ever see them. And he says, I've come to do something about that. And I want you to be free from those consequences. So I'm doing it for you. And when he was on the cross, he was thinking about you. And that is what kept him there. Because that is the strength of love that he has for every one of us. When I was about 20, I got to a point in my life where I thought, there's got to be more to life than I was seeing. I was aware of things in my life that were wrong. And uh, somebody had told me something about Christianity. I didn't understand very much about it. But I said, well, if you're up there, God, then I want to do things your way. And I want you to come and clean me. I want you to come and forgive me. And I wanted to put everything that was wrong in my life on that cross. And I simply said, if you're up there, come and forgive me and come and start to lead my life and ever since then I've never looked back because something very real happened that changed my life from the inside out. Let's pray. It may be that you're, that you're unsure whether you've ever really believed in Jesus and I, I want to pray a prayer that you might want to quietly pray in your own heart if you like and it's just a starting point to respond to some of the things we've talked about tonight. So if that's you then, then here's the prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong in my life. There might be specific things that are on your conscience that you want to just kind of give over to him, ask forgiveness for. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven, that I could be set free and that I can be cleaned. And from now on, I want to follow and obey you as the leader of my life through Jesus Christ. Amen.